I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I first saw John, I first met John here in this room. Um, uh, and so it was uh, a wonderful event for me. Um, uh, and I know that he had a very special relationship with this place. Um, uh, I'd like to think that he's roaming the room this evening, um, tutting at my stupid questions and, and asking me to get a move on. But the very first time I, I, I met John in person, uh, by this time he was a an elderly and benign soul, perhaps. Uh, it was in a big house just off Wimpole Street. Um, art was along every wall. Um, his rooms were on the top floor, and we had to share this tiny lift. It was like one of those sort of small lifts that you get in a sort of Paris apartment block. And so almost the very first time I was with John, it was inches away from each other's faces. And we spent a wonderful afternoon together. I was trying to persuade him to put together the two books, Portraits and Landscapes. Um, but we talked about everything else. We talked about Rosa Luxemburg, Charlie Chaplin, a visit that he made to uh, Le Corbusier Church with two nuns. It's one of the great events uh, that, that I have had as, as an editor as in, in this game. Reading Joshua's book, I have to say, you get a sort of sense of this great spirit. Um, this is an intellectual biography of a man, but one also gets a sort of sense of the person themselves. That first image of John, that sort of benign, hospitable soul, is, is very much what we started off with when we were thinking about the publishing of the book, and there you sort of see him in his, his elder statesman's role, perhaps. Joshua was absolutely right when we started thinking, when we started showing him designs, that, that, that he should actually give us a different view of John. And so you'll sort of see a much younger uh, version on the final cover because uh, that's really what this book is about. John is trying to, well, Joshua is presenting John as a, a different kind of figure than the one we've come to sort of accept him as. Rather, he wants to show us as a kind of a rough, a kind of rough against, running against the grain of history of this, this character who is, who is really trying to change things, not just trying to be uh, uh, reflecting the world. And so this restless soul is the soul that we sort of see in the book. So I wanted to start off uh, uh, asking Joshua really about how he came to know John, how he came to fall in love, I suppose, with John's mm -hmm. work. When did you 
first come across John's right. writing? Well, I'm sure um, there are people in this room who, who know John as a person better than I ever came to. But I feel like I came to know him very closely through his work. And it's hard to imagine a time when I didn't read him. And I was 22 when I first read him. And to give you a sense of what a writer can do if, it, if that writer hits you at the right age, I, let me give you a sense of where I come from. So I, I grew up in Southern California in one of those like McMansion-y kind of like pink stucco homes. My, I wasn't raised by wolves, but <laughs> I was raised by scientists, which is a kind of, I've realized it's sort of, it's, it's, it's proximate actually. And I grew up, there was, the house had no culture in it at all. <laughs> Um, the only adults that I ever came into contact with until I left for college, pretty much, were scientists. And so when I went to UC Berkeley, I thought I would be a physics person or maybe a neuroscientist. And I was a physics major on the one hand, but then when I was at Berkeley, I started to sort of explore politics and, and, and art. And th this may seem like a tangent, but I think I'll come back to it um, because it is where I end the book. That an event that was very important for people my generation, Americans, was the attacks of September 11th, right? And I, I don't just mean that in terms of kind of patriotic love of country. I mean that especially for somebody like me who came from a fairly cloistered background. This was an event, I was in my second year of college, that sort of waking up to, wow, there's way more out there than I had, had thought. And I was a physics major at that point. And then I started to kind of gravitate towards media and, and culture and, and politics. But when I graduated, I knew I didn't want to go into physics. And, um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. A personal, personal tangent, but my, my first love at the time was a woman who was Gujarati from India. And um, when we graduated, we spent six months in India and Nepal. And, and for those of you who've gone to college and graduated college, you know that that first year after college, it's very strange and kind of surreal because you spend all your time in school where you've been studying syllabi, you've been reading books and ideas and having debates. And then you go out into the world and you meet all sorts of people, people who've never gone to college. You have to make money, you have to save up. So I was 22, I was spending this year when I knew I wanted to travel and see what was beyond America. And I'd saved up a bunch of money working um, this, some odd jobs. And we were in India and then we went to Nepal and I bought About Looking, this uh, Berger's book of essays from the 80s. And what I encountered in these essays was a way of thinking that was absolutely sort of analytical and almost algebraic and um, very, very intelligent. And in a way, absolutely sort of in, in in touch with the critical theory that I'd studied at Berkeley. And yet it also, and unlike everything that I'd really read up until that point, it's something you could read outside. <laughs> it was something that did not smell like a seminar room. It didn't smell like a symposium. Um, there's a line in the book where I say, of all the critical theorists who have emerged from the new left, Berger is perhaps its own, the new left's only plein air practitioner. Um, and there's a sense in which I think Berger, and I, it became more clear in retrospect, um, it was all intuitive at the time, but was taking these ideas of um, philosophy and politics and art history, but he wasn't content just sitting in a classroom. And so for a few years after that, I actually carried Jeff Dyer's edited selected essays 
around with me for years and embarked on a kind of second education um, through Berger. It's like a syllabus outside of school where I think we'll get into this. He's such a generous soul, and that generosity is comes through if you meet him. And when I eventually did come to meet him, he's such a generous person, such a kind of attentive presence. But I think it also comes through with his essays. He's one of the few writers I know who can write about so many different things in a way that is so accessible. And I think, especially for somebody like me, where I didn't go to Oxford, I didn't go to Cambridge, I didn't go to Harvard, I didn't study the classics. He was a writer who could take the canon, and he didn't exactly demolish the canon. And we know of him as her ways of seeing as this kind of demolishing the Beaux-Arts kind of connoisseurial tradition. And he, he did have that in him, but he, I don't think he really wanted to demolish the canon. I think he wanted to take the canon and bring it down to earth and connect it up to the experiential commons of the experience of a forest or the experience of a barbershop. And he wrote about great art in a way that for somebody, an American from Southern California like myself, I found that I was in the presence of somebody deeply unpretentious and deeply sort of aware of life on its broadest sort of brushstrokes that I was beginning to see above deck, as it were, once I graduated. So, so that's sort of when I fell in love with him. And it was years before I knew I'd read a book about him, but here I am. And, and so you, you, you met him, you worked with him a bit, you worked on his archives when you were in, in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, uh, John has died probably, it's nearly two years, so January yep. 2017. Uh, and all the obituaries, sort of, uh, I think the one word that sort of kept on as a rhythm through was sort of controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and yet he was many different things. And, you know, two years on, have we settled on any kind of sort of conclusion about John? And, and what's the kind of John that you want to bring out in this book? Well, the John that I first discovered, I realize, is not the John that many of you probably first discovered. It's most common to first learn of him in a classroom, I think, and with Ways of Seeing. And for years, Ways of Seeing, which is a TV show that he made in 1972 and later a book, was, was a kind of, as one professor put it, it was a very quick detox to just give your students to clean the slate for subsequent kind of theories that were more sophisticated. But as I go into in the book, I think that in England and especially, he left when he was in his early 30s to the continent and he left with a big bang. He sort of was, he grew, in his 20s, he was a deeply controversial, and I'm using that word, but provocateur, a defender of realism, a kind of diehard communist during the Cold War when that was a dangerous thing to be. And he left and he really pissed off the British establishment and he thrived off of pissing off the British establishment. And I think in the British obits in particular, they can't let go of him as that young, firebrand, agitator, this kind of incontinent Marxist satyr that's just, you know, and, and, and taking on Sir Kenneth Clark. And that's one, that's one John. And I think that that's a John that a lot of British people of a certain age know. And then there's a slightly younger John that, and I think that there's a younger John, which is this kind of mountain Confucian, Zen of hope, this man who said every, every word needs to be poured over and studied. And, yeah, and, and I certainly, when I was in his presence, he, he has that effect on you. He, you do feel like you're going to visit the oracle when you go visit him in his mountains. And he said, mm, and he, he'll, he, the way he speaks is he kind of, he'll stop and think for about a minute in silence. 
and say, yes, yes, brilliant, brilliant, what you're saying. And, but he'll speak, and, and you, you hang on his every word, and it's really like this kind of grandfather kind of figure. But, so I think there's a kind of double image that doesn't totally fit. On the one hand, a Marxist firebrand, an agitator. On the other hand, a kind of one-of-a-kind polymath, a monk in the mountains, somebody that we just celebrate and we can't ever see any contradictions within. And I really, in writing this, I wanted to get away from hagiography on the one hand and caricature on the other hand. And I, wanted, I, I really think that there's been so many people who love Berger end up writing these really saccharine kind of things about him eventually. And I think that it doesn't do him the service that he, he really deserves. And I think the best way that you can look at a work is to look at the whole work and to study the contradictions. He actually wrote a number of crappy books, you know, that like weren't that good, frankly. And, and I think it's like all, all the better for that. I mean, he's somebody who didn't care about, you know, he wasn't a perfectionist. And so I think what, what I'm trying to do here is to, like to, to accept, but also to get beneath the hagiography on the one hand and the caricature on the other hand. And I think that I didn't want to do a Photoshopped wedding portrait. I wanted to do a portrait where there's shade and you can see the wrinkles. And I wanted to put him back in history. I wanted to repatriate him to history. And that I think if there's been a disservice done to him, it's been in, in, in sort of photoshopping him out of history and praising him without realizing what he was doing was done at a specific time and looking at the phases of his career and that there's development and there's change and there's contradiction and there's, I don't think it's hypocrisy. I think there's contradiction. I think he, there, there's integrity, but contradiction. Um, so I really wanted to repatriate him to history and to look at the work in relation to the intellectual dramas of his peers and, and his life and what was happening with the political possibilities of that time. Because I think that's something that's been lost a little bit when we talk about Berger. He's stopped being a kind of political guy. You know, he's political only as a kind of nostalgic thing from the 70s. But I think he hasn't, the, the real politics hasn't, we haven't grappled with it as much as we can. So let, let's, let's focus on where, as it were, where he comes from. Uh, obviously, he grew up in Stoke Newington, um, a fairly sort of middle-class <clears throat> family. Yeah. He went to a public school. Um, he goes to art school. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at 18, he, in, in 1944, he enlists. enlists. Yeah. How much is that experience important for the post-war, that sort of firebrand of the, the, the 19? 50s and how do those sort of phases, if you like, sort of build into what was a, you know, in some ways a sort of comet onto the, to the art critic scene? Yeah, it was everything. I think that World War II, the, the experience of World War II for Berger was an experience that he never saw combat, but he experienced it on the home front. And I, I make a, in the book, I say the two, if Sartre says, you know, there are these decisions that you make in your life that can't be explained, but they define your life. I think the, the biggest decision Berger ever made was when he left England, and we can get to that. But I think the second biggest decision that he made that really defined his life for him was when he was 16, because his father was a managerial accountant. His father had been an idealist in his youth and had thought of becoming an, an, an Anglican priest and had fought in World War I. But by the time his son knew him, he was, he was an accountant. And he went to public school, which I've learned is private school, but he went to these... Um, these all boys academies of kind of one-upsmanship of verbal rhetoric and so on. And he, he, he was absolutely miserable in this. And I think, and I bring out in the book that I think a lot of his kind of Oedipal relationship with the British establishment probably dates back to 
his experience in some of these schools, which he says was barbaric and miserable and so forth. But the decision he made at 16 that he, he speaks about is he ran away. To what extent is this apocryphal? It's, it's, I'm not, I'd love to know whether he packed his bags and actually ran away. But he left a, a, pri a public school in Oxford and, and, and came to London during wartime and lived with and, 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 and enrolled in um, Central School of Art. And with, yeah, and, Southampton Row. Southampton Row. And was, was an art student living in a city at war and bunking with uh, the first woman he ever loved. And so I think that this, the idea of sort of everything's at stake, tremendous urgency, the mixture of the aesthetic and the erotic, um, all came together. And then, and then he did, he, he, did um, he was in the army and he was in Northern Ireland in a training depot. And in his kind of mytho... He refused to be an officer. Yeah, in his mythopoetic kind of story, he refused to be an officer. I think there's some debate as to how that decision actually, who, who made that decision, right? But um, he ended up bunking with working class men. And that was the first time in his life that he came into contact with the working class in a, in a genuine way. And again, in his kind of, the way he describes his experiences, that he was a kind of scribe for their experiences. And he would write, because many of them were near illiterate, and he would write letters on their behalf. And then I see that as the birth of a kind of role that he, he cast himself in, which is that he's writing on behalf of the working poor, expressing their experience for them at a time when everything is at stake. After the army, he, en he, he enrolled in um, Chelsea School of Art and uh, became a painter and, and wanted to be a painter and, and was there with a cohort of mainly uh, people who were just out of the service and with some spending cash from the government. And many of them had seen um, combat. Some had been on the home front. The whole faculty had been involved in the war effort. And there's a tremendous sort of focus at that time in the late 40s of recover of, of, of Britishness and kind of national solidarity. And this was a time of sort of the birth of the welfare state and the birth of socialism, right? Um, the spirit of 45, for those of you who've seen the, the Ken Loach film, right? And he comes of age thinking that painting can participate in this and that art should participate in building a socialist future. And he was uh, effectively a communist. And... Um, Although, curiously enough, he never actually joined the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. And he was a painter for his early 20s and didn't totally take off. His career didn't totally take off. But he, when he started lecturing to make money, he, he really found his calling, I think. And um, for that time, he was in his early 20s at the time. He first started reading art history very seriously. And it was on the basis of some scripts he did for the BBC West African Service. And that's sort of interesting to as a kind of colonial moment where he's speaking about art in the Tate to um, listeners in West Africa. On the basis of that, the editor at the New Statesman recognizes his talent, picks him up. He starts writing for the New Statesman in 1951. And in 52, in that one year, he goes from absolutely anonymous to the critic everybody is talking about. And the a total controversial young voice, the brightest mind of his generation, and but also and increasingly over the course of fifty three, kind of a menace, and he he starts to kind of feel out. He I think 
in, in the first part of the book, I realized that the archetypal situation he's living through is he's a young man realizing that on the sheer force of his intellect and his personality, he can change things and he can steamroll through institutions. And at the end of 52, the um, Whitechapel Gallery gives him a carte blanche to make his own show. And he curates his own exhibit of realist painters. And a lot of critics for a time in the end of 52 think Berger's realism will be the future of art and, and this is the direction painting will take. And that didn't take that direction, but that's a sort of early history of Berger, the fighter, Berger, the cultural campaigner, the activist. Um, and he really got to take, I, I say this in the book, he didn't get it, he got, if he missed out in combat in the war, he got a taste of it um, in, the, in the English culture pages of the magazines because it was just sparring. And very much, I think, like what probably happens in some of the boarding schools. And so in thinking about that relationship between art and politics, he, he famously sort of said, I didn't get into um, uh, uh, art through politics, I got through into politics through art. And mm -hmm. there's this wonderful quote that you, uh, when he talks about being an art critic, mm -hmm. I try Ariadne-like for a path that is by no means a straight one to follow up the threads connecting it to the early Renaissance, Picasso, the five-year plans of Asia, the man-eating hypocrisy and sentimentality of our establishment, and to the eventual socialist revolution in this country. And if the aesthetes jump at this confession to say that it proves that I am a political propagandist, I'm proud of it. But my heart and I has remained those of a right of a painter. painter. And that seems to me that, you know, He's working on a lot of different sort of planes at mm -hmm. this this point, but does the politics sort of take over? Does or is he trying to bring all these things up within himself? I, I think politics takes over for a few very formative years in his life. I think it's a kind of when I was researching this, it was hard for me to understand what was at stake in the fifties. Um, recently, I, I understand with the culture wars that are taking place now in terms of what painting can be in a gallery and various sort of controversies about who can paint what and so forth. And that all of a sudden, I think we can understand the 50s better. That quote, far from dragging politics into art, it was art that dragged me into politics. That came at the end of a huge controversy in a culture war in 1953 when the ICA announced a competition to build an unknown, a monument for the unknown political prisoner. And there was a bunch of money, it turned out, that was coming from America into this competition. And the resulting statue in the Tate that was chosen was a Reg Butler maquette um, that was very abstract and in line, which would then become what was known as the kind of politics of apolitical culture or abstract expressionism is that which cannot be put in the service of the state and therefore that which is the sort of art of liberal democracy, whereas social realism is corrupt because of Stalinism and because of Nazism. And Berger was coming into this and he was a young man getting in over his head but the sculpture that was chosen was an abstract sculpture and a Hungarian emigre actually walked into the Tate and bashed the sculpture, I mean, destroyed the sculpture and was arrested. And Berger said, it was in the, it was in the big you know, kerfuffle that came out of that, that controversy that he said, this shows the total farce of modern art and that it's all about this sort of just cultural capital for the esthetes that's totally out of touch with everyday life. Um, and we need some kind of realist renaissance in, in, in England. So I think he was in the midst of these, these battles with Sir Herbert Reed and with David Sylvester and with Patrick Heron, if these names mean anything to you. And, and I think it, it, he's, he's fighting this fight and he's fighting the battle of realism until about 56. 
And 56 is like the 2016 of the 50s, I think, in the sense that a kind of collective optimistic hallucination hits a wall for a variety of reasons, which is interesting, but most notably that the Soviet Union invades Hungary at this time. And to get a sense of this, think of like liberal Zionists that are kind of sympathetic to Israel and are kind of constantly trying to defend Israel. And then if Israel does something that's so heinous, they're a little bit like, oh, there's tons of pressure. And that was the case for Western Marxists at that time who were kind of sympathetic to Stalin, sympathetic to the Soviet Union. When this happened, Berger, I think he had a breakdown at this time. And actually, it coincides with the dissolution of the marriage. And he, he takes that, that, that the, the, but my heart and I have remained those of a pain, is one of the last articles he wrote before he took a leave of absence in 1957 from the New Statesman to lick his wounds, basically. And it's at that time that he writes A Painter of Our Time, which is his first book, actually. And it's, for those of you who've read it, I think it's a deeply moving account. And it doesn't feel like a young man's book. It's written as a fictional diary of an elderly Hungarian artist who's sort of obscure and... Um, it's a it's a very kind of aged document, but the the Cold War had absolutely aged him, and I think that that moment, and it's an interesting kind of birth of a writer moment, that it's through the the crucible of the culture wars and the hitting of a dead end that I think he he couldn't write anymore in that rhetorical kind of campaigner rah rah kind of speech. He had to switch to a quieter, more conflicted tone that that you can't really do in an op ed. And that was when he, he embraced fiction. So in some ways, I think that political disappointment for him and political failure even was when he switched maybe out of, out of one mode and into a quieter, more kind of ambivalent mode. And then in um, 1962, he actually leaves. And, yeah. and I think that's something that, I mean, obviously we need to sort of, sort of, sort of unpack. Mm -hmm. um, was that coming out of exhaustion? Was it a retreat from sort of the metropolitan debates? Or was it an attempt to go to a new place or to find a new, I suppose, uh, area of, of investigation? He always said that he knew from the time he was a boy that he wanted to leave England. I don't know how much, how true that is, actually. <coughs> I think that when he started out as a critic, he was speaking on behalf of what he wanted British art to do. It had a kind of national language that dropped out after 56. And I think 56 was the beginning of him saying, I want to get out of here. I'm not sure he knew where he wanted to go just yet. He says that France, he was thinking of Italy. He was drawn to the South. I think it's sort of partly circumstance that he ended up in Geneva. His, he ended up marrying this woman, Anna Bostock, who's a cameo in the, in, in the book. She's a tremendously um, interesting intellectual and translator of Walter Benjamin, Bertolt Brecht. There's a wonderful portrait of her. In <clears throat> yeah, Lukács. And, and I, I acknowledge that Berger was really absorbing a lot of her, uh, her influence. And she was a translator, and she got a job in Geneva to, to work for the United Nations. And so that he, he sort of spends time, time there. He also had a friend, um, and in fact, Anna Bostock's ex-boyfriend was a... Um, one of Berger's best friends at the time and was a realist painter that he championed. So it's all very kind of connected. Who, who, who bought a place in Bagneux in the south of France. And so Berger starts, the way I describe it on an archetypal level is I think he's in the late 50s, early 60s, he's like testing his balance between two feet of England a little bit, Europe a little bit, and seeing what it would be like to kind of make that jump. 
to the South. And, and the, the France he imagined, yes, it's the France of Merleau-Ponty and Sartre and so forth, but it's also the France of Cezanne and of, and of Van Gogh and these painters of sunlight. His early fiction is very indoors. And when he starts writing G, and so that's when he, it's, he starts to exist outside. And do you think by getting out of that sort of small art world of London was a liberating? Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think we, we see this now with, with Twitter, right? I mean, there's a kind of seduction to the speed of sort of call and response that can, be, can prevent you from engaging in projects at a kind of longer, longer durée, let's say. So he, he, one thing that I think, to Berger's credit, and it's something that I think is, he had stamina and he had resilience and he could outlive failure in a way. So his, after he um, left England, he wanted to become a novelist and he wrote two novels that were really bad and that didn't sell well. And he still kept going and going. And it, he spent five years working on G, which was his kind of, well, actually the Picasso book was his return to the four and that comes out in the mid sixties. And then G and ways of seeing, it's sort of like he's been gone for 10 years and he comes back, but it's a different time scale than he was, he was engaged in before. Before he was writing articles about last week's exhibit and he was participating in the chatter of the metropolis. When he goes to France, He's living a, a different time scale, and he, he's, he's taking his time crafting a book that takes five years to write, but that's still meant to kind of boomerang back into England and cause an explosion. I think very much that role when he was a critic, it was very much a sort of solo voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I think a lot of us uh, really appreciate about John is some of his collaborations, in particular with Jean Moore, who mm -hmm. sadly passed away very recently. Uh, and thinking about The Fortunate Man, and the seventh month, which kind of straddled this this period. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that relationship start up, and what do you think working with someone else did for John? Yeah, I think that's huge. I think that especially as he got older, he was aware of the contradiction, which I think plagues many social. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Most writers are political writers, which is you're writing on behalf of of the collective, but your success is, is individual. And when you're at your writing desk, you're writing by yourself. He understood that he wanted to forge very deliberate kind of collaborative relationships with folks. And the one with Jean Moore was, he had a very beautiful friendship with this, this man. In many ways, they're opposites. John is, John is, Berger is very hot-headed and tempestuous, and Jean Moore is very calm, very Swiss, uh, Germanic almost. And 
they actually met through a, another friend, Alan Tanner, who Berger also made films with. And Tanner had lived in London, was actually a boarder in Lindsay Anderson's house, the filmmaker Lindsay Anderson. And so, so when he when when Berger showed up in Geneva, he said, "Hey, Alan." Do you know any photographers? I'd like to do this book about a doctor that lives in the forest of Dean. And, and Alan said, yeah, I know this guy, Jean Moore. And they got together and Berger proposed, hey, why don't we do this thing where we go and live with a doctor who I know. You take your photographs. I write my, my text and we come back and assemble it. It sounds pretty easy or pretty <laughs> straightforward, but there really are very few books that are like this. I mean, I, I sort of compare it to a documentary film. It's like Okay, you have a couple people. Let's go follow somebody. Let's like make a portrait of them. And it was very humble. It was just in an apartment that they they did this. And what they came out of that with was this book, um, A Fortunate Man, which if you if you haven't looked at it, I think is just a really touching, an extremely unique mixture of text and image. Because normally in sort of photo text, you have the the photograph on one page with a caption, and then the text over here. And this sort of blends them, almost the way a voiceover and footage are blended in a movie. It was just, it's a brilliant um, collaboration. They went on to make uh, more work together. Um, and then Berger worked with Alan Tanner on a number of films in the 70s. And, ever, and since then, I, I think especially after 1972, he stopped thinking of himself as a novelist and thought of himself as a storyteller. And I think he wanted to get away from the, the novel's obsession with the individual and society. He'd sort of, but we, we can get to 1972, which is such a key uh, year. Yeah, I think, I think that's where we're going to go. Mm -hmm. but, but, but was the idea of being a, uh, a, a storyteller a way of sort of being able to move across medium without, without worrying? Because in 1972, um, just in case, he obviously did Ways of Seeing on the BBC. And then that autumn, he... Uh, wins the Booker and famously gives away half the prize to the, the Black Panthers. These two things seem very separate, apart from the fact that they're very much in the same year. I it's mean, at the how same are they, time. How are they connected? Berger's back. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what it was. He'd been away for 10 years. Um, and Berger arrives back in London tossing grenades. G, he worked on for five years. And he, 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 he wanted it to be an attack on bourgeois taste. He wanted it to be an attack on the kind of realist conventions of the novel. And he enacts that when he shows up at the hotel at the Cafe Royale and reads this speech to the literary establishment, very much if I were to read a speech to you right now, saying, you're the culture that formed me, and you are the colonizer, and I don't want to be, I, this is my final break, and I'm donating half of my money to the Black Panthers. And that was a big kerfuffle in, in British literary um, circles. But Ways of Seeing is coming out at the same time. And he's absolutely tossing grenades into this other wing of the British establishment, which is the museum. You know, so I think they're, they're, I, th I see it as the last kind of ne plus ultra of his needing to get out of his system a kind of Oedipal wrath at the establishment, at the father figures, at England. And once he did that, he actually enters a bit of a, of a crisis. Um, he's at the height of his fame. He's receiving invites from all sorts of institutions, the Met, universities. I mean, he could have been a writer in residence until he died, basically. But he, he, I think he recognized that that would be the end of him. His marriage is falling apart, and, um, and it is interesting how each of his metamorphoses kind of dovetail with a change in his marital 
situation. And I think the, the, the women in the book are sort of this presence that are, that are there and that it's something I'd talk about. But um, at that point, I think he, he really, he moves to a village and he wants, he actually in, a few years later, and he, I think he's lost and he's trying to find kind of grounding attachments in his life at the height of his fame. And that's when he thinks of himself as a storyteller. Mm. It's as if up until that point, he wanted to be a novelist. He wanted that recognition really badly, actually. And with Ways of Seeing and with G, he'd gotten it. But I think he recognized that if he kept going down that path, he'd be defined by what he's against. And I think one of the things that I find so moving about Berger's life is that he started out as an angry young man, but he kind of became younger as he got older and in a way that most, especially white men, a lot of them, when they get older, they become these kind of curmudgeons and kind of bitter and they, they move to the right, a lot of them. And um, he didn't do that. He became more generous and, and he, he sought out a place that I think would let him stay in touch with what he loved. Um, and he actually grew younger, I think, and really became the, 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 the Berger that we know today in the 70s after he'd gotten this kind of Oedipal angst out of his system. I think you used the phrase uh, radical hospitality, which I think is yeah. a, quite, quite, quite a good one. But what, what comes after, as it would, although you know, none of these things are you know, chapters that open and close, they're kind of plates that sort of move in and out to each other. Mm -hmm. The sort of the next, the third phase that you sort of talk about is, is, is the one where he commits himself to the village, mm -hmm. where he becomes this kind of resistor Mm -hmm. And he becomes this chronicler of of, of peasant life in the um, uh, in our labors mm -hmm. into our labors yeah into our labors mm -hmm. uh, sort of trilogy. What was that about? Was that a comment on on uh, the sort of the impossibility of being able to engage directly in mm -hmm. terms of politics? Was he going to go and find another way of dealing with the world? I think there's it's overdetermined. There's a lot of things in, that are involved here. And one thing I wanted to get away from is the kind of obsession in traditional biography with like, in the summer of so-and-so, he had, he was dealing with his eczema and he was call, like calling his mother. And so I, I, I didn't want to do that. And there's a line that he quotes, actually, Berger quotes from Peter Weiss, the, also a communist and painter turned author, that his autobiographical novels are not concerned with the secret difference between a writer's public and private self but are obsessed with the relationship between the, intimate, the, the writer's intimate self and the unprecedented events of his period. And I think that he, if we look at it from that perspective, I think that the radical revolutionary of the early 70s was very much in line with the new left and with what the 60s counterculture sort of saw itself as being about <coughs> and what they thought was politically possible at that time. And in the mid-70s, that all kind of plays out. And the start of the kind of long march of finance capital starts. And what we would call, you know, kind of the age of neoliberalism really begins. And I think he starts to realize that the political struggles will go on beyond an individual life. They're very long. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you can have a sudden change that's just around the next corner came to seem naive. And I think the peasant for him and the village was a symbol of preservation rather than revolution and some kind of resistance in these pockets. And that's, he becomes, he comes into himself as a kind of conspiratorial voice of, in the age of anti-globalization, 
or these little pockets that are that are kind of clandestinely preserving ways of life that he saw a kind of market economy as stamping out. And that's the Berger that I think we we come to love, but it's all the more amazing if you see like the long road that it took to get there. He was in his 50s really when when he sort of entered this identity. And and he started seeking out work and place and an attachment to place. And he found a place that he could live and be happy. And that's something that I think is is in his work all along is this interest in and yet play. kept 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 alive a sort of sort of different political kind of campaigns you know his sort of commitment to Palestine um, uh, yeah, and Turkey the Zapatistas yeah. I talk about this in the book because I think it's a it's a tension that we're living through now is to what extent is an attachment to a place can can move to the right mm-hmm. through xenophobia and it can move to the left in um, sort of community spirit. I think there's a certain strain of post-structuralist thought that sees attachment to place as something that's sort of reactionary. And, I, and Berger, I think it's, it's telling that he is the two people that he came to speak on behalf of, almost like the young soldier writing on behalf of others. The Zapatistas and the Palestinians both do not have states, you know, or, or do you know, they, they don't have that same kind of reification of ethnic nationality, but are these sort of stateless outsiders, but that are still attached to a place. And yeah, he very much was involved and in, in absolutely ferocious in his politics near the end of his life. And I think to loop back around to September 11th, something that I don't think has been discussed enough about Berger's legacy is that this was a time when aging men of letters in the West are writing apologias for the American invasion. The New York Times was endorsing the American invasion, the New Yorker, but you know, this was, and Berger was uh, like he was in, his, in the 50s. He absolutely didn't care what people thought. And he, he was a, a compass in a hurricane. And I think he said a lot of what is now kind of obvious looking back, but we need to appreciate that he, he asked very sort of important questions at that time that would, were difficult. He compared he sort of thought September 11th, he compared it in an article in The Guardian to Hiroshima as two fireballs in urban cities, bookending the American half century. And I can't think of another writer who could make that comparison without sounding shrill or heartless, but just sort of bringing some perspective at a time when everybody was, had lost it. So he, he absolutely remained ferociously political. But he also, I think, Something I noticed is that his ferocity and his kindness were two sides of the same coin. And that's something I think we can take from him today, because I think in our debates, there's a, a certain quotient of ferocious anger that we all have. But I think he always kept that connected to this generosity and this kindness and this humanity. That, and they, they were part of the same thing for him. So I'm going to open it out to the, to the audience. Um, so... Start thinking of good questions. Um, but before that, I just wanted to ask one last thing. For somebody who, or uh, somebody who's young who hasn't heard of uh, John, what's the one thing that you would give them mm. in order to sort of find out about him, to, to learn something about him? You know, I think the, the book that is probably his most beloved and his most accessible is Here is Where We Meet, which r- was written on the cusp of 80. The only reason I wouldn't suggest that book is that by the time I, that it is more amazing to read everything to see how he got there 
rather than to that be your first thing. And I remember I had read most of Berger and I, I read back and forth to my mom, here is where we meet, when it came out in hardback, having just read all of Berger in the last year. And I just melted because that to understand how he went from where he, he started out to that book, it's extraordinary. So maybe start with here is where we meet, read other things and then come back to here is where we meet. Uh, yeah, this is a very quick one about um, your mention of a breakdown, a possible breakdown. Mm. And I love um, A Fortunate Man. Yep. And the doctor who's at the centre of A Fortunate Man commits suicide yep. after John has written about him. Yep. What impact did that suicide have on his storytelling and did it tilt him towards a kind of more documentary yep. approach? So John Eskel is the, is the doctor. You know, John likes to say that he um, visited him for a stomach ache. I can't be for sure about this, but I sort of get the sense that it was for deeper uh, issues and that they had a very, very close bond. It's, it's very strange to read that book knowing the doctor eventually killed himself. His wife had, had died just before. And, um, you know, I don't know that it necessarily affected John so much, but he never profiled a living human in the same way. And I always felt that Berger's acts of his sort of brilliance and talking about this man and all of his, he mentions he suffers from depression and so forth, that it's kind of a sense of violation maybe, or of domination anyway, here's this. But, and I, I couldn't totally forgive Berger for that, but I did come across some letters that Eskel wrote the last year of his life where he said, if it wasn't for John and Beverly, I don't know what I could do. Like, I need their support, they believe in me, and so forth. So the doctor never felt betrayed, which was, and that, that was really interesting. The doctor reading these letters is very disturbing, actually, because you can tell he's unraveling, but he would come and visit John and his wife at that time and kind of share his problems, and, and John would kind of try to boost him back up again, and so, I don't know the effect that it had on John, but I know that the, I always thought that the doctor was held something against John, but it actually was not the case. Um, I came to John relatively late in, in my life, uh, and I was struck by his expansiveness, I suppose, and, and subtlety. And I find myself, I haven't read your book yet, so uh, apologies if you've answered this in there, but I find myself curious to know, I know he had children, I think three. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious to know what sort of father he was. I'd like to think that my book, I don't, I, some review said I didn't go into the bedroom as much as I could have. And it's sort of, well, as much as I, I don't want to go in, in as much. But I think I came to understand, I think, the essence of some of these relationships. And you'll find it in there. I know some of these people. It's, it's, it's interesting. I think he, so he had two children with Beverly. In this, in the new, during this heyday of the new left, of his radical kind of um, phase. And it really is textbook Oedipal because the son, Jacob, wants to be the father and goes off to NYU film school and was brilliant and very good looking, but kind of really does not materialize and has substance abuse issues. And, and, and later um, really comes to place the blame on the father and on Berger's sense of being such an overpowering presence in the home. He even historicizes it to say that that generation thought, the new left, thought that they could remake history from scratch with revolution and down with traditions, down with the past. 
and that he sort of viewed this, he, the son, Jacob, calls it a generation of political alpha males that had this kind of muscular um, approach that didn't have room for the nurturing that a child would need. So that's, that's a tragedy in his life. But his, his younger son, Eve, is like, I think Berger understood, it's complex. And he, he Eve and, and, and John are very close, were very close. And it's, it's almost, the, he has two sons and they're kind of on opposites in terms of, and he was an extremely loving father to Eve. And I think was able to kind of redeem, make up for maybe what he saw as some of the mistakes that he might have made. So asking you to like comment on it rather than answer is the question is a bit slightly oblique. But um, like the thing I really love about John Berger, I get from his books, particularly like the essayistic stuff like Confabulations, Our Face of Our Hearts, etc., is like a kind of pace which compared to like everything else in modern literature, it's so slowed down, it's so yeah. calm then he kind of achieves something kind of with the spacing in that calm. Um, same with um, A Fortunate Man or whatever. And I think like maybe, and it can link to so much else, like why he'd leave London for like rural France is because mm -hmm. it's such a slower pace of life. Mm -hmm. I was wondering kind of what you think of that, what, what John Berger thought of pace, that was something very deliberate about him. Mm -hmm. He must have found a sort of different clock. Definitely. Um, yeah. When he would, once he had moved not just to Europe, but you know, in, in, into the deep rural uh, sort of hinterland. Yeah, I think he was writing at that when he left. He was now writing back. He was not in, in it. He was writing back to it. And I think that trajectory. I feel that when I read something by him, it sort of has, has traveled quite a ways, and that there's been that that time also acts as kind of like water on, on rock or something, that it, it, it slowly gets down to just the essential. And he once said he doesn't gargle with words. I'm kind of, I mean, I, I'm a little, I'm neurotic, I, I talk about, but he's, um, I too also found that, that his essays create a space. It's kind of like a pocket that you exist in with the essay and things calm down and they slow down and you, you begin to notice things that you, you hadn't noticed because you're rushing by them before. Um, and I think absolutely he's, he's a part of living away from the city, I think, was very much a part of that. You know, he didn't have a telephone where he lived when he first moved. To he really went kind of, it was the back to the land age, and he really did an outhouse across the way and so on. And I think he was very conscious. He wanted to discipline himself away from the kind of distractions uh, of modern life somewhat. But he was always moving to something. It wasn't like he was moving away in order to sort of, you know, if he wanted to find that peace in order to do that sort of deep thinking, that wasn't a retreat. Oh, right, yes. I want to be very clear on this, and I'm quite clear in the book, that when, when especially city folk talk about folks who move to the country, that's, they talk about it as a retreat. That usually means either like a surrender or a rest, right? And Berger really didn't do either. He really sought out... I think the twin affects that he was seeking out is exertion and exhaustion by working. And he wanted to get to know village life and, and, and um, make himself a part of the, this, this alpine valley where old men were still living um, in a way, in ways that dated back many generations. Sadly, it's kind of disappeared now. Yeah, I think it was a deliberate choice to seek out the places and the ways of going about your day that can kind of get you out of the 
hectic mindscapes that we all live in. Because I agree with you, that's what I love about his work too. And with the, with the Fortunate Man, you open the book and it's like you're entering this imaginative space where th it's a different relationship with time than, than we have when we read the latest hot take or whatever. What was his relationship with the French um, art and literary scene? Because they're very snobbish. Mm. And here's an outsider coming in and kind of, he kind of knew it all between what we thought, you know, the, from an English sort of perspective. How did that work? Because he managed to stay for the rest of his life in France. Yeah. I think that weirdly, they never accepted him. And he wanted to get to know maybe Barth and Godard and these people, and they didn't accept him. And weirdly, that let him stay in France where he was not a celebrity. So in France, he's really not very well read. That's the one European kind of country that he hasn't. Because he's translated only in Spain, I know. Well, in Spain, in Germany, in Scandinavia, in Turkey, in, you know, in South America, in China, it's, but France. Just about one of the contradictions you mentioned, you said as a young man, he regarded that kind of mid-century abstract expressionism mm -hmm. as pretty high bourgeois mm -hmm. elite culture but that in the realm of the novel, he regarded realism as that, at least when he came back in the 60s to England. Is that just one of these contradictions or is that a kind of part of the evolution of his thought mm -hmm. or are the two somehow linked that he regarded realism as sort of pro-people, pro-worker, et cetera, in mm -hmm. the artistic realm or the visual realm, mm -hmm. but not in the realm of the novel? I was just wondering, you said that um, how profound an impact John Berger had on you as a 22-year-old, what was it like writing about him, working with him? I'd be interested to know how that was for you. I'm just wondering, what did John think about um, fame and about his own position within the cultural landscape and how it changed through the years? Because you mentioned before that he really wanted to be a novelist with an impact, that he really wanted to, to, to be a, a mover and shaker. And that changed, of course, over time. And like you mentioned, he has different levels of fame in different places. He's actually very well read in, in Spanish, in, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in South America, and very beloved. I, I wonder what he thought of that, what he thought of his own standing in the cultural and literary world. Uh -huh. And in, in a political sense as well. I mean, what did he, how does it, he, did his position or thinking about what the artist's impact on the world could, could be? And the writers. Okay, great. So I think we had a question about realism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We had um, uh, working mm -hmm. with him, and then finally, sort of fame mm -hmm. and legacy. I don't see how they connect necessarily, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they all have to do with Berger. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and it's a contradiction, and it's this probably the central contradiction in 20th century aesthetics. I think is between realism and modernism, and Berger's work is on that scene. And I think he, he realized he oversimplified things. And in 56, when he hits, things hit the fan, he starts to ask himself, and he, he publishes an article in a mark, small journal called Marxist Quarterly that nobody's ever heard of, um, called The Necessity of Uncertainty, where he says, dear Marxist comrades, maybe we've written off modernism a little too hastily. Maybe modernism is not just a reflection of decadent bourgeois culture. Maybe there's some discoveries here in Cezanne and Cubism and so forth that we can do something with. And everyone's like, this is pathetic. Who are you? You're a traitor. And then with the new left, everything changes. 
And you have this sort of birth of political modernism, the rediscovery of, I mean, a lot of the modernists that the MoMA was claiming were apolitical were communists, you know? So I think that, they, that those origins were conveniently forgotten by, um, you know, Alfred Barr Jr. and all these folks who were kind of setting American cultural policy. So yeah, that, that's a contradiction. He lives out. And then eventually he kind of goes back to the realism in his late work. I think into their labors, there's stories there that are very much like an Italian neorealist film, in a sense. So he kind of goes back to almost like a De Sica movie of um, a neo Italian neorealism had a huge impact on him when he was a student. So yeah, there's, it's, it's, it's ongoing. It's shuttling between the two. In terms of working with him, I was really, it's so weird to meet somebody in the flesh after so long. And his wife is sort of a gatekeeper, or was, because he's so generous, and she was like, so she has to be the kind of, like, otherwise he'd just never get any work done. But he's so kind. But he's so kind to the point that you don't want to abuse it. Something that I would say in the work, when I was working on this, and I was weirdly, I felt slightly liberated when he passed away, working on it, I and mean, if I can confess to this because I've read a number of things that people wrote about him and it's as if they're writing it for him to read and for him to pat them on the back and so on and I didn't think I wanted to do that and that was something I struggled with and I always say in this book it's uh, yes you can learn about him but I also wanted to learn something from him and he's not the kind of guy that would I don't know. So I, I was living with this contradiction of recognizing that and this maybe ties into the next question about um, his celebrity status. And for I think it's so rare to meet a famous writer who you don't have to go through agents to get to talk to them. And you sit down with them, you have a coffee, and, and it's it is um, incredibly approachable man. Absolutely no tolerance for the kind of agented structures of hierarchical culture status bullshit. I think he struggled with his celebrity, and I think that's why he never took a writer in residence and he didn't become the toast of the town in New York. He got lots of letters saying, ways of seeing is causing a commotion in New York. You should, you know. And I think he, you know, Thoreau says like the price of anything is the amount of life you have to give up for that thing. And I think he recognized that he'd have to give up too much to be a kind of toast of the town guy. And I think he, but I think he wanted it. He really wanted that recognition and he got that in his by the time he was 50. And after that, he starts, he definitely, he's, he's a man of integrity, but he's also shrewd and he understands he needs to have publishers. And so he, he had relationships with newspapers in Sweden and Italy and South America. And he got, he was in an amazing place in his old age where if he wrote an essay, it would be translated all over the world. I mean, that's, and so he's on the one hand is an outsider to the academic scene, to the publishing industry a little bit, but he maintained those connections so that he could have a voice. And it's kind of amazing. I was just, somebody who'd never heard of Berger but read my book was like, I can't imagine this guy had a voice. Because now he was, it's just so rare that somebody like this gets to be of that level of prominence. So it's, it's a miracle, but he, he never, I think, I think he, he struggled with the idea of being a celebrity and the fame aspect of it, which is one of the reasons I think he did move to this village at, at the height of his fame. Uh, I would love to say thank you, Joshua. That was absolutely Thanks, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.